Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 13. And while you're turning there, we'll go ahead and and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you are the one who is able to establish all things according to your gospel. According to the mystery of the revelation, which has been kept secret in ages past, but is now made clear to us, is made manifest, but is held before us in your word, in scripture, God. According to the commandments of you, who is eternal. And this word has been made known to all of the nations, Heavenly Father. And it leads to the obedience of faith. An obedience of faith to you, the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, the one who lives and was and is to come, and the one to whom all glory shall be forever. God, as we come to you in your word, we ask that you would work in a marvelous way as we come to you in the midst of our sorrow and our sin and our suffering, that you would uphold us. And you would uphold us not by our own strength, but by your goodness and kindness. And uphold us through the promises of your word. And it's on those promises that we rely and we long to see them fulfilled. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As you very well know, the Rock of Gibraltar is named after Tariq ibn Zaid. Now, Tariq was a a commander of the Caliphate army that for the last 80 years had taken over Mecca and had swept across northern Africa. And it was now swinging north. And Tariq takes him and crosses over into Spain. Then, for the next 20 years, the thirsty Muslim swords parched, longing for the blood of men, marched north through Spain. And there was very little holding them to then sweeping up and then conquering all of Europe. There was a duke named Odo, and he was defeated by this, uh, the subsequent commander after Tariq. And he went fleeing and running to Charles. And this Muslim army that was ready and had swept over already continents, had, had taken them in their grasp, 
It was sweeping north until it hit a hammer. Charles Martel, the hammer. Odo, the Duke Odo, pled with him. Of course, he threw in some land, which I will say helps. And right away, Charles Martel, he has a standing army. He brings him down to two tours, and he, he surveys it. It's quite an amazing battle. He sees it, and he knows he's vastly outnumbered, and he doesn't have any heavy cavalry, which the Muslims do. So he stays back in the woods, and for ten days he's patient with his men, patient, patient, patient. And finally, with winter looming over them, these Muslims, used to the Middle East, didn't want to winter. And now this place that was getting cold. So they, after 10 days, or about 7 days, they eventually go in and attack. And the cavalry attacks these men in the woods, obviously doing nothing. And then their cavalry, their, their infantry is able to come out. And eventually, they subdue this Muslim army. In one of the most important battles in all of history, the Battle of Tours in 732. Right away, Charles Martel is called on and he acts immediately. And that's the same thing we want of God. We call on him and we ask of him and we expect him to act immediately. Without any hesitation and with the boldness that will come and rescue those under his care. Like Charles Martel. But what do you do when it seems like he doesn't? When you know he's able to, but he's not. That's the beauty of this psalm. It's the cry of a heart that's drowning in sorrow, calling on God, and seemingly, by all appearances, hearing nothing, nothing in return. What do you do in those hours? What do you do in that darkness? That's what we're going to look at. So what I want you to see here in this psalm is that you would long to see the steadfast love of God. In the midst of your sorrow that you would endure, that you would long to see it. That you wouldn't turn inward, that you wouldn't feel sorry for yourself, but that you'll be longing to see God. The steadfast love of God. So how are you going to see this in the psalm? Well, verses 1 and 2. We're going to see the lonely, the lonely and the longing soul. He's crying out to God, how long, how long, how long? Verses 3 to 4, you're going to see this the pleading of his case. I gave this outline to Curtis several weeks ago, and I told him I'm going to come up with a better part for that those verses than I never did. It's not the best, but it is. It is what it is. The pleading of his case there in verses 3 and 4. And then verses 5 and 6, this is the glory of the psalm here. What do you see? Rejoicing. Rejoicing in sorrow. So, the lonely and the longing soul, unfortunately, pleading his case. If you have something better, let me know. And then, rejoicing in sorrow. Let's go to the text here. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have my sorrow and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Our souls are never so raw and never so despondent as when they feel as though they are distant from the Lord. You see this repetition in David. It's almost a breach of etiquette. Three times in Hebrew is enough. And he's like, this breach, breaching all etiquette. has four times. He's crying out to God. How long? How long? Oh God. As if even the moment of distance from God, even that is unbearable. And he's saying, will you forget me forever? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And you notice the direction of David's plight and also his prayer. It is to the Lord. His concern is with the Lord. His longing is to be with the Lord alone. That the Lord would not be distant from him. That the Lord would not hide his face from him. All of this uh, enemy's talk is downstream of his predicament, the main predicament, which is him and his relationship with the Lord. And appearing and feeling and thinking that God is distant from him. And he's saying, will you, will you forget me forever? It's, it's always been the people of God who have forgotten the statutes of God. You read through the book of Numbers. It's them who forget the commandments. It's them who forget the, the law. Read later when they're thrown into exile. It's always the people of God who have forgotten God. And now you see David, the psalmist, whose heart is torn apart because he fears that God has actually forgotten him. And in the midst of sorrow, in the dejected heart, these appearances, they become a reality. It appears as though God has forsaken you, and then that is what becomes your reality. And it's the eventual work of God to steer our hearts to see. That it was only these visions of distance between you and God, that they were only a mirage after all. These things that it will last forever. And this, in the midst of suffering, time seems to stop. And one of the commentators so beautifully put it, it seems as though this, although momentary, distance from God, seems like an eternity. And in that sense, it becomes a, a foretaste of hell. That you were eternally separated from God and His goodness, from God and His favor. From God and His delight over you. So not only is David wondering how long, but he's wondering if he will be forgotten forever. And he's wondering how long God will hide His face from him. This personal communion with God here, this desire to personally commune with God, is what's flowing out of David's heart, the psalmist's heart. He's not concerned about seeing God in these proper theological concepts, which are perfect, they're fine. You'd be willing to be burned at the stake for them, yes. But that's not it. He's not thinking of God as some impersonal, ethereal force out there, kind of holding the world together. No, that's not it. The Lord, he's calling on the Lord, the personal name of God. Yahweh, he's calling on him in the personal name of God. Wanting personal communion with God. You don't care if a a theological concept is distant from you. You don't care if an impersonal force is distant from you. But when 
God turns his face from you. Your soul is in anguish when you cannot see his face. That's all you want. You want to see the face of God. Absolutely. We rejoice with Miriam. After she's singing about the the crossing of the Red Sea, we rejoice that God has delivered his people from sin and from judgment. That's what we rejoice in. We will eternally rejoice in. But that rejoicing would be incomplete if we were not there beholding the face of God. Indeed, it's the benediction, the great benediction. Quinn, if you haven't thought of one, here you go. That the Lord tells Moses to tell Aaron to give to the people as a blessing. That the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord would look upon you with his face, that he would look upon you and give you peace. This is what Paul is longing for in 1 Corinthians 13. When there will be that day when we will see God face to face. That is what we long for. This is some of you right now crying out to God. Feeling as though He is more distant from you than He's ever been. And the turnings and struggles, you re- I want you to realize that this is actually a good and a blessed position to be in. How many years of pure wickedness were we telling God to get away and to get away? A little prick of conviction of sin. And you don't want to deal with the sin, you just want the conviction to go away. And you know it's from God, and so you tell Him to go away. The people are sharing the gospel with you, you're angry with them. You just want God to be gone. And so if you are no longer there wanting God to be gone, but if you're actually in the place going, God, where are you? It's anguish to the soul, but praise God, you're no longer here telling God to get away. It's anguish. But it's a place of blessing. The fact that you're struggling is evidence that God loves you and loves you deeply. So he's crying out to the Lord, how long? How long will you forgive me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in myself? That's that's David saying, if if you're going to be gone, then I'm forced to turn inward and to make my own plans. God, I know that's the means of judgment. I don't want that. Don't make me feel as though I have no other recourse but then to uphold my own life. I don't want to take my own counsel. I want to look to the to the, the older men and to the older women. I wanted to look to your word, God. I want to look to you and behold your face. I don't want to uphold myself. It's not what I want. So when we read these psalms, a little a little side note here. What do we what do we do with these, right? You come across them and you go, oh, another element. Another lament. Another lament. It's not just that. They're here for a reason. As they're compiling these, they could have plucked it out, but they didn't. 
So when you're reading these, you must ask yourself, what would be the corrosive effect on my soul if I did not read these, if I did not pray these, if I did not sing these together? What sin is being purged out of my heart? If I did not read these and pray these. So here's David's heart. Just pulled out of his chest and laid bare for you. To examine. Biblically, look at it and examine. Because you can't look at your own heart. Wicked. Biblically test. David's here. Through the word. The psalmist lets you know that it is good to express the sorrow and the appearances of this distance from him. At this point, he's not answered. And his desire for communion is just kind of lingering out there. And oftentimes we, we, we take our sorrow as though it was a representative of our mistrust in God. Right? And we, we wipe it away with a habitual yet often shallow rehearsal of the words that God is good. Yet this is a legitimate and beautiful prayer that's in the path of this emotional darkness. The type of place where you're afraid to invite God in. A prayer like this, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And we read that and we think, well, if we're tempted to pray that, but then we go, well, God, I... I know you won't forget me because you're, I mean, you're consciously knowledgeable of all things at present time. So you haven't really forgotten me. Okay. And you, you diminish what's actually the turmoil in your heart. Oh God, will you hide your face from me forever? Well, I know you're omnipresent. So you haven't really hidden your face from me, you know. And then we keep God as a distance and, and needlessly. That's the beauty of this psalm. It's not in opposition to taking every thought captive for Christ. This is how it happens. And these are the first steps. It's not the conclusion of the psalm. It's grasping you up where you're at and bringing you to somewhere else. So pray these. Whatever the, the condition of your heart is, cry and call out to God. In sorrow and in sin, cry and call out to God. Especially in your sin. Some of you, some of you guys were incredibly hungover when you came to church. And that's the day you got saved. I'm not going to look at you right now. I'm just right up there. That's how God works. Some of you feel more sorrow and distance from God than in any other time in your life. Right now. Today. Cry out to Him that He would not turn His face away from you. Cry out to Him that He would not forget you forever. Cry out to Him that He would grasp you up and move you through this psalm and not just leave you there. So this is what we see of David here. It's not only expressing his sorrow, but he's pleading his case as well here. So read verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me. 
O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Literally in the Hebrew it just says, look, hear me. You're hiding your face, look at me. You're not answering me, hear me. Super simple, clean, crying out from the heart. Rather than continuing to forget him and turning his face away, God is wanting, David is wanting and longing for the Lord to look upon him. Calling God to look upon us in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of pain and sorrow. And he's pleading with him to, to answer me. No longer is he going to take counsel in his heart. But as you see in verse 1, no longer am I going to do that. God, I want you to answer me. I can do this on my own. He sees the folly of this self-guidance has already run its course. And he knows that it's not the way. And then he runs with greater resolve. Even back to the Lord. Back to the Lord again. He says... Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The only the parallel here is, uh, as your eyes grow dim, as you're about to die, that's what David's feeling. You're, the distance from you, God, I he realizes is death. My eyes are growing dim. I'm going to die. You are distant. You are distant from me. I have no life within myself. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The presumption here is that the psalmist's enemies are the Lord's enemies. And they can't have victory of it. His enemies cannot have victory because they know, the psalmist knows, David knows that they are the enemies of the Lord. And they can't have victory because David's aware that there's some cosmic battle happening here. That is transpiring between good and evil, between God and Satan, between light and darkness. And this is, how much more do you, does this remind us of Christ? It's just pointing directly towards Christ. Is it not? The, those opposing Christ could never, they could never succeed. They could never pre- prevail. Because they were attempting to oppose God's plan of salvation to redeem people that could worship Him and glorify Him forever. Herod killing a whole town's worth of children, two and under, will not stop God's plan of redemption for you. The Pharisees mocking, ridiculing him, having him arrested, will not stop God's plan of redemption for you. The high priest throwing Christ in the dungeon will not stop God's plan of salvation for you. It was Christ who is eternally intimate with the Father, yet Christ is the one who's crying out. How long will you hide your face from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
there upon the cross. Will you forget me forever? It was Christ who slept the sleep of death, as you see in verse 2. And in all of this anguish and turmoil, it's all pointing to Christ. And I want you to see that Christ is the resolution. He's the only resolution for all of this as well. Christ is the only one by which you are able to go near to God. Not of your own strength, you can't do it, but only through Christ. That He is the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Christ is the only one that has the steadfast love you see in verse 5. You're not going to have that. Not in yourself, not through your spouse, not even through your dear blessed children. Only through Christ will you have the steadfast love of God. It is Christ and in Him that we have the light of God to enlighten our eyes and pull us away from the threshold of death. It is in Christ that we are able to mock the enemy who seeks to lord over us, who seeks to prevail over us. The great enemy of death. You're able to mock it. When the imperishable When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Christ who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through Christ. But what do you do? This is a nighttime psalm. This is the, the type of psalm that you that you cry out. This isn't like a three in the afternoon type of psalm. This is a two AM kind of psalm. When it's still dark. And yet you see that you have resolution. The resolution will come in these next two verses. Even before the beams of light. Come across the horizon. Let's look in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here you have it. You have the trusting. You have rejoicing. You have singing. And notice the object of these as well. I will trust, I will trust in your steadfast love. I will rejoice, not in my circumstances, not in myself. I will rejoice in your steadfast love and I shall sing. Not for my amusement, God, I will sing unto you. Because you are Lord. But what about the sorrow? Where is it gone? It's still there. Don't you see that? The sorrow is still there. It's in the midst of sorrow that I'm still trusting. It's in the midst of sorrow that I'm still singing. It's in the midst of sorrow that I am still rejoicing. We have our emotions and we want to keep them separated like a little kid with their food on the plate. You have your corn here and your potatoes there and your meatloaf here and none of them mixed together. They all have their stations and they're separate. And we treat our emotions the same way. We think that when my sorrow is done, clear threshold, that's done, now I can trust. 
When my sorrow is done, then I can rejoice. When my sorrow is done, I'll know my sorrow is done because now I am finally singing. But that's not what you see in the psalm at all. So what does this look like in your life? But in the midst of your heart, slowly fading, you still trust God. In the midst of your miscarriage and the sorrow that it brings you through, you still sing. In the midst of your marriage that was once sewn so tightly that has begun to fray and is now unraveling, you still rejoice in the God of your salvation. That's the beauty of this psalm. Is that you see this trusting, rejoicing, and singing even in the dark shades of sorrow. They, they show us what it looks like to have our, our emotions redeemed. But I thought that the ideal Christian was just basically someone on antidepressants. Just never too low, never too high. But what do you see in the garden? You look in there. What do you see? You see rejoicing. You see a naked man and his naked wife. And he's singing over her. He's delighting over her. He's full of joy. What do you see later in, before, in, in chapter 3? What are they doing? They're walking with God. Communing with God. Delighting in God. So these emotions are not something that just comes up after the fall. And now we have to deal with them. Suppress them. Push them aside. No. They need to be redeemed. And it's all of them that need to be redeemed. It's not as though just these, these ones that are kind of pre-fall emotions of joy and delight, they're fine. And then all of these post-fall ones of anger and pride and bitterness, as though they're, they're fine. That's not it. Dick Reagan pointed out to me that but the problem, so it's my thorn in my flesh is anger. So that my problem is not just anger and I have to get rid of it. That's not it at all. The problem with my anger is that I'm out actually angry enough. I'm pathetically angry at weak little things. I'm angry because everybody in town is a terrible driver and that makes me angry. I'm angry and get frustrated with my kids because in eight minutes they can't feed, bathe, and clothe themselves and put themselves to bed. And it makes me frustrated. I'm, I'm angry, a small amount of anger at those pathetic things. The fact that there's a place in town that kills children for money. I'm not angry about that. I should be way, I should be incredibly angry about that. I should be angry about the things that God is angry about. So the problem is not your lust. The problem is that you're not lusting after God. The problem isn't that you're boasting too much. The problem is that you're not boasting enough and you're not boasting in the right things. You're boasting in yourself. It's pathetic. You're going to die. The problem isn't my joy. I just need more of it. No, the problem is that I'm not joyful and delighting in the right things. That's the beauty of these psalms. 
is that all of creation has been corrupted by the fall. It's not just my thoughts and my, the actions of my hands that need to be redeemed. Even my emotions need to be redeemed. And the Psalms are one of the best ways to do it. So, what does it look like? What does it look like then to have our emotions purged and cleansed by the work of Christ? What do we see in this song briefly? Uh, Number one, pray to God in the midst of your suffering. Pray to God in the midst of your suffering. Are you in sorrow? And it seems as though God is turning his face away from you. Actively turning his face away from you. Cry out to him. Pray to him. Are you enveloped of sin? Just wrapped around in your sin? Where else are you going to go? Go to God. Even if you don't believe in Christ. What do you do? Go to Christ. And take the matter up with him. In all things. Especially in your sorrow, especially when you're despondent, go to Christ, cry out to Him. Alright, so number one, pray to God in the midst of your suffering, of your sin, in the midst of your sorrow, cry out to Him. Number two, have confidence that these verses, five and six, That I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Have confidence in them. Even if they're still not yet answered. Right? So you look at Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She is, she's going, she's mocked and ridiculed because she's barren. And she goes... Again and again, year after year, to this place. And she is crying out to God. And Eli, who's there, thinks she's drunk because she's just laying her heart bare before God. And he gives her some reassurance. In verse 17, 1 Samuel chapter 1, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. So the woman, so Hannah, went away and ate. And her face was no longer sad. She left. She was still barren. She left. She was still the object of scorn and ridicule. But she walked away full of faith. And so that's what it is. In the midst of your sorrow, it is an act of faith and an act of trust that you would rejoice and trust and sing in the midst of your sorrow. You're not being fake at all. No, it's an act of faith that you're relying on God to carry you through all of it. One of the commentators said, it's it's." By faith that we are confident about redemption and salvation as if it has already happened. As if these verses, these latter parts that we will trust and sing and rejoice. We're going to do that in, in faith that, as if it has already happened. As if our redemption and salvation and deliverance has already come. 
We will do it. What do you think we do on Sunday mornings? We're not yet in the glory of glories. No, not yet, but this is an act of faith. As the people of God get together in faith and trust that there will be a day when God will bring all of his people gathered together. That's what we are doing. Acting in faith. For the promises of God that we are not yet realized. It's the same thing you do in the midst of your sorrow when you sing and trust and rejoice in God for all of his goodness. So pray to God in the midst of your suffering. Have confidence that these things will come to pass, even if they haven't, and act as if they have, by faith. And number three, just realize that the walk of faith is never clean. You're going to have mixed emotions. And that's okay. Just because you're in the midst of sorrow doesn't mean that you cannot trust. Don't believe that lie. It's because you have a despondent heart doesn't mean that you cannot rejoice in who God is and what he has done. Don't fall into that trap. That everything else, that this has to be completely taken away before you can trust and sing. Don't wait for your hardships to be gone before you can trust in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, in the midst, in the midst of our sorrow, let us taste and see. Let us taste and see that God is good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that we know that though it seems as though your face is turned away from us, God, your face is turned away from your Son. And in him we have hope. And trust. And God, we ask that you would give us faith to walk, not by your own sight, God, not be tethered away from you, shackled away from you by your midst of our sorrow is that we have to go through that. God, let us be so vulnerable and so open to you and so trusting you that we would long to invite you into the midst of our pain and the midst of our sorrow, knowing that you are the only resolution. God, I pray for us as a church that we would not see others in sorrow and wait for God to deal with it, but that we would come alongside with them and give them the healing balm of love through your Spirit. God, build us up into that church that loves and cares for every one of us. And all God's people said, Amen.